Well, uh, yeah, again, good morning, friends, good to see you. And um, mm. just wanted to, uh, yeah, acknowledge the band this morning. It was just a really awesome time of worship together. And um, you guys coming out and joining, joining the warm. Thanks to Stacey, who came down here yesterday and put the burners on for us. So hugely appreciated. Now, uh, hopefully you've got your thinking caps on this morning. Um, you know, you should put them on every time you come to church, I guess. But um, you might know that I sort of dabble a little bit in philosophy. You know, I like to kind of wrestle with some of the big questions of life. Are there any other philosophers here amongst us this morning? People who think, you know, they, they've got a bit of a handle on the big questions of life? Anybody? Nobody, okay. Maybe I shouldn't have said I've got a handle on the big questions of life. <laughs> Anyway, if you were just not quite sure if you're a philosopher or not, um, I found a, a definition. Uh, it goes like this. Philosopher, a philosopher is a person who knows less and less about more and more until he knows nothing about everything. Now, there's a very interesting assumption in this, and that is that philosophers are men until he knows nothing about everything. And I think that is probably true because a woman would just get on with it. She wouldn't, you know, faff around with pretending to know nothing about everything. She actually knows stuff. She would get on with it. But if you know anything about philosophy, you'll know that it's typically associated with dusty old men who sort of sit around in leather lounge chairs, smoking cigars and kind of discussing the big questions of life. That's my impression of philosophers. I don't know if that's yours or not. But I thought it would be interesting to try that out this morning. So, unfortunately, we're not supplying the leather lounge chairs and the cigars, okay? Which I think some of you are probably disappointed about. And thankfully, there's no dusty old men here. You'll have to go out and find them somewhere else. But I think we could have a go at philosophy. I think we could un try and unravel some of the big questions of life, which, which could be a little ambitious, given our time frame, um, but also that you know, perhaps we've bitten off more than, or more than I can chew, but I think, I think the best way to do it is to narrow down our focus. And so in the sort of academic area of philosophy, there is, there is a bit of a, a subset which is known as situational ethics. And basically what this is, is situational, situational ethics. Right, so that is a mouthful because philosophers like to make up big words. Situational ethics is really how we apply moral values to difficult circumstances. Okay, how we put into practice what we say we believe. That's the basic crux of it. So let's say you're sitting in philosophy class and um, you're presented with a, a hypothetical dilemma. Some sort of difficult choice that has to be made. And so what we're going to do is just toss around some scenarios, some really sticky situations... And I'm going to encourage you to think about what you would do in those situations and, and share your thoughts with maybe three or four people that you're sitting um, around. Now, a <clears throat> couple of things to note. This is a no-judging zone, okay? So there may be different opinions to you, which is fine. Uh, you do not have to share your perspective with the wider group, the whole church cats, just within the, the three or four people that you're sort of sitting around. And look, there'll be probably a, a bunch of perspectives and opinions, but that is totally fine. It's just about discussing. So just have a quick look around and see who's sort of sitting beside you. If you don't like them, now's a good time to discreetly change seats. But if not, 
If not, uh, you know, feel free to move your chairs and do a little bit more of a huddle situation. Find two or three, three or four people, whatever, and then I'm going to put up these scenarios and you are welcome to share your opinion. Okay, does everybody understand what's happening? Yeah. Okay, good. Right, we'll start off with an easy one. Here's the first one. Okay, situation one. Your family is homeless and hungry, and the only way to feed them is to steal food from the supermarket. The question you're going to discuss is, is it ethical to steal food in that situation? Okay, no judging zone. Feel free to discuss. You've got a minute. Okay, <clears throat> this was perhaps one of the more easier ones, so this is good, this is good. Alright, second one, second situation where you can feel free to share your thoughts and opinions is this, an intruder breaks into your house and threatens to harm your family, is it ethical to kill the intruder? Pardon? Day or night, mm, good question, uh, it can be up to you. <laughs> Does it depend at the time of the day? Okay, cool. All right, there you go. Boom. Okay, the next one's um, a little bit more complex. So hopefully you've you know, been able to share your thoughts on the last two. This one is a bit more complex, okay? So I'll read it out. Uh, a woman is separated from her husband and children and imprisoned in a prisoner of war camp. The only way out of the camp alive is for the woman to become pregnant as pregnant women are considered a liability. Is it ethical for the woman to commit adultery so she can become pregnant, get released, and reunite with her family? Discuss. <laughs> All right, 10 more seconds on that one. Okay, pretty tricky. All right, there's one more. There's only one more. So um, hopefully you are hanging in there. All right, remember this is a hypothetical. You and a handful of other passengers survive a plane crash in the Himalayan mountains. You're all starving and there's no food. Is it ethical to resort to cannibalism so that some might survive? Now, this was, uh, there was a movie based on this, which was actually based on a true story. So if you've seen the movie, you know what they chose. Anyway, go for it. Okay, there's a lot of laughter from that one, so that's good. Um, all right, so hopefully, hopefully all of those situations stay hypothetical for you, right? No one's planning on flying over the Himalayas anytime soon. Okay, because it's tough enough just to figure it out in your head, what would you do, let alone have to 
have to be faced with those decisions in real life. And I guess the tension with those situational ethics is that the decisions are not necessarily black and white sometimes. You know, you're faced with an impossible decision. You've got to make the best of a bad situation. And, and what's worse is that often those situations uh, make our morals kind of not mesh with the messy reality of life. And so it's easy for us to think that we would never steal until maybe we're starving. Or it's easy to think that we'd never kill another person until our life was threatened. Or we'd never compromise our morals until we were you know, ripped apart from our loved ones. Or it's easy to think we'd, we'd, we'd save everyone until we realise that we can only maybe save a few. Now, like I said, hopefully you'll never have to face any of those difficult decisions, but the reality is that we actually wrestle with situational ethics on a lesser degree in our everyday lives. I mean, is it ethical to buy a coffee from the cafe without first verifying if it's fair trade? Or is it ethical to shop at one of those big box bargain retailers because we like the low prices but ignore the uh, pay rates that they give to the employees? Is it ethical to enjoy someone else's art without compensating them? Is it ethical to creep over the speed limit just because we're running late? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because I have had a lot of speeding tickets, okay? So the last person that I want to criticise about that. But our lives are complicated and, and we live in a, a really messy, not ideal world. And so some aspects of our lives are, are very clearly black and white. I think I know you well enough to say that you did not wake up this morning and thought, should I go and steal a car? Should I go and rob the bank? Should I go and cheat on my taxes? I'm pretty sure you didn't wake up and think that this morning because we know what is right and what is wrong in those situations. But there's other situations where the decisions that we face are much more nuanced, that life is a lot more messier. And that's really where the genius of Jesus shines brightly. For the last few weeks, we've been unpacking how the genius of Jesus has has revolutionized our world, how, how Jesus disrupted conventional ways of thinking and he invited people to a new way of living. And so the reality is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you probably try to do the right thing. Like most of the time, that's easy to figure out. We know that it's wrong to you know, steal a car or rob a bank or whatever. We know the difference between right and wrong, but the, our dilemma comes when the decisions are not quite that clear cut. And actually, many of the big decisions in life that we face are not necessarily between right and wrong. They're between right and right. And that's where it gets confusing. And when there's a number of options that seem right, what is, what is the most appropriate option to choose? And so the genius of Jesus is that he presents a new way to kind of to wade through the complexities of life. Jesus goes beyond right and wrong, beyond good and evil. In fact, in much of his teaching, he assumes that people know the difference. What Jesus excels at is this thin slice of life, like peeling back the layers and teaching us how to choose between the right and the good. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus was having to deal with people who were using doing the right thing as an excuse for not doing the good thing. 
So we're going to read a story uh, together this morning. It's recorded in the Bible in Matthew chapter 12. You're welcome to uh, turn there or swipe there with me if you want to. I'll put it up on the screen as well. But this is what we read, Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 1. About that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Let me just pause and just kind of help you understand that in the first century, the Jewish people really revered and respected the Sabbath. So rolling back into their history, God gave Moses a command centuries earlier that the Sabbath was a day that was to be set aside each week where the Jews would rest from their work. And so to protect the people from violating the Sabbath, the religious leaders, these Pharisees, they came up with an extra 600 or so rules and regulations, just kind of clarifying what people were allowed to do and what people were not allowed to do. And so that's why the religious leaders said that Jesus' disciples were breaking the law. They believed that, that grabbing some handfuls of grain as they were walking through a field was technically working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus responds to these accusations with with a real stroke of genius. This is what he said. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. So Jesus just does this this dive into Jewish history and he he talks about the honoured ancestor, King David, and and a time when he ate the sacred bread. And in that moment, David's need for food was more important than the rules and the regulations. And then Jesus presses his argument even further and he says, the Jewish priests, they're allowed to work in the temple on a Sabbath and they're not guilty of breaking the law. Now you need to know very clearly, Jesus is not condoning disobedience to God's commands. There's not like a free-for-all, like anyone can just do whatever they want, whenever they want. Right through his life, right through his teaching, Jesus affirms that there are absolutes that God has established. But he's trying to highlight here that the religious leaders are hung up on the letter of the law, and they're missing the spirit of the law. And so Jesus quotes Uh, God's message to the prophet Hosea. This is what he says. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. So Jesus echoes these words from Hosea, where God said to his people, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. In fact, that message is, is repeated many times throughout Jewish history. God desires genuine followers, not pretenders. He wants people who are sincere, not just simply going through the motions. And actually, in this moment, Jesus gives a really a clear warning about the danger of religion. Our religion often puts in rules and regulations and routines to help us avoid the wrong and to encourage doing right. But sometimes, even when you do all the right things it doesn't actually mean you've done any good things. 
And so to hammer home this point, Jesus heads to the local synagogue. This is what we read in the very next episode. And Jesus went over to the synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes, so they could bring charges against him. Obviously, the religious leaders didn't bring their thinking caps to that particular day, right? They clearly missed the hint of the previous episode. They were angry that Jesus apparently disrespected the Sabbath, and they were desperate to accuse him of not doing the right thing. And so look at his response. Verse 11. And he answered, If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. This is Jesus creating a, a situational ethic dilemma. Almost. Because Jesus knew what the religious leaders would answer. He knew that they would not hesitate to save their sheep, even if it meant working on the Sabbath. And then he drops the kicker. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored just like the other one. You know, Jesus had no patience with those people who would focus on doing the right thing at the expense of doing the good thing. And actually, when you, when you look at his life, that's, that's, what Jesus, that's what got Jesus into trouble. In fact, the very next verse, verse 14, the religious leaders get together and they start plotting to kill Jesus because he had a reputation of ignoring the right thing that people expected him to do and instead doing the good thing that needed to be done. That's why Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. That's why he spoke with women in public. That's why he welcomed children. That's why he ate with the poor. That's why he helped his enemies. Jesus did not allow the right thing to stop him from doing the good thing. And you know, religion creates structures and systems which, which are, are an attempt to minimize the wrong that we do. You know, to put it in religious words, to stop us sinning. And that's not bad. I don't know about you, but certainly I have a tendency to lean towards destructive behaviors. So avoiding that is really, really important. But it's very easy for that to blur into legalism. And in Jesus' day, the religious leaders spent their entire lives following the rules about the Sabbath. And they had honorable intentions. But they were blinded to see that the most significant thing they could do on that day was help others. And perhaps this is really where the genius of Jesus kicks in. Jesus pointed out that doing the right thing is all about you, but doing the good thing is all about others. And there's this curious truth that when you focus on doing the good thing, when you focus on bringing good to others, when you focus on living a life that seeks to do the good, what happens is that good actually changes you. I guess that's, that's not really surprising, and that's really how the story of human history began. If you look at the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God created the world, and God looked at his creative work, and there's this phrase that's repeated. When he looked at what he had made, God saw that it was good. 
Now, if God was all about religion, maybe that phrase would say something like, and God saw that it was right. But God was not aiming at being right. God was aiming at creating the good. And the problem with our modern language is that we sort of think good is sort of okay, but then there's other words like great, which are better than good. And you could probably blame uh, this book, came out about 20 years ago by a guy called Jim Collins, From Good to Great is the title. And it's really about sustaining excellence in business, but the title implies that there's good on one level and there's great on the next level. But that's not really quite right. When you look at sort of definitions and meanings, great is really about achievement, but good is really about essence. So if the story of creation, Genesis chapter 1, focused on God's achievements, then great probably would, a, would be an appropriate description. You know, God created the light, and it was great. Although, although that would, that would be like a little bit weak, wouldn't it? Like sort of, there'd be some better superlatives to describe that. You know, God created the sky, and it was, it was spectacular. Or God created the land, and it was it was amazing. God created the oceans and it was magnificent. Or God created the animals and the fish and the birds. It was awesome. And if you think about it from that perspective, good is, good is a bit of an understatement. But that's because good is not necessarily about achievements. It's about the essence. And so when God looked at his creation, he saw that it was good. He saw the essence of what he had created was good. And that's why God's mission through Jesus, is to restore in us the good. And the way that happens is not sitting around in lounge chairs, smoking cigars and talking. The way that good is worked out in our lives is if we roll up our sleeves and take action and do good. Because doing right is motivated largely by a sense of self-righteousness. We want to be right, but doing good is motivated by love. And actually, love is the ultimate motivation for God's restoration of his world. According to the Bible, all of us have fallen short. We've missed the mark. Our sin has stuffed up our relationship with God. And, and if we're honest, we've made a mess. Not just of this world. I mean, the poverty, the injustice, the violence, the corruption, but even of our own lives. You know, we really peel back the layers we are selfish and ungrateful, complacent, sometimes angry. And so in those situations, the right thing for God to do would be, I don't know, just to wipe the slate clean, to start over, to leave us to our own vices. But God went beyond the right thing and he did the good thing. Instead of judging and condemning us, which, which would have been the right thing, which was what we deserved, God was motivated by love. And he sent his one and only son to dwell among us. So Jesus would give up his life as a sacrifice. So that all of our sin and shame would be taken away and that we could live in relationship with God. Now logically, that's not the right thing. It's not the right thing for Jesus to carry the weight of our sin. It's not the right thing for Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. It's not the right thing for the innocent to bear the burden of the guilty. But it is the good thing. And if you want to know what it looks like to move past doing the right thing and doing the good thing, 
then look at Jesus. Look at his life, his love, his sacrifice. Doing the good means that we don't measure people by what they deserve. But we measure it by the love, by the kindness, by the mercy, by the grace that we can give. And ironically, when we do the good thing, we discover that that is the right thing to do. Doing good is really liberating. No longer are we stuck in the cycle of worrying about having to do what's right. Jesus frees us to do the good that he has created us to do. Listen to how Titus chapter 2 puts it. He, that's Jesus, gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. Or Ephesians chapter 2, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So if you look at the world that we live in, there are many people and many places where good can be done. And if you're struggling to figure out um, what good you can do, let me just give you a really simple formula, like just a little tip. The first thing you need to do is think about what you are good at. And you're all good at something. And the second thing is, how can you use that good to bring, the thing that you're good at, to bring good, the most good to others? I think sometimes it's very easy to look at the messes of this world and, and feel overwhelmed. But you also need to know that you don't need to be good at everything. I mean, maybe you can't sing, but you're really good at accounting. Maybe you are not organised, but you have heaps of creative ideas. Maybe you've got limited technological skills, but you care deeply for people who are hurting. The simple truth is to find your good and then get to work. Jesus never hesitated from doing good. That's why he healed on the Sabbath. And, and God would never create a day when we can just take a break from doing the good. Every day is a day for doing good. So I encourage you today and the rest of the days this week and, and onwards to do the good that you were created to do. Because when you do the good, you reflect a God who in his essence is good. How about we pray? God, you are a good God, and that's how you deal with us, graciously, mercifully, and lovingly. And we just simply ask that we would do the same. In situations this week, in the decisions, maybe the difficult decisions we have to make, the dilemmas we face, the people that cross our path, May we do the good that you call us to do so we can live and love like Jesus. In his name we pray. 